Amen. God is good. I was hoping someone would say that. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. You know, every Sunday, I take such pleasure in seeing our numbers increase and some people who haven't been here in a long time. I wonder, Justin, should we do like reunion roll call maybe with that? We'll just name people who are here for the first time in a while? No, that, that might not be the incentive to, to come back that we, we want to provide. So. But it's so, so good to see you, and um, I think back to when we didn't have people in this room, and I just shudder. That's what I do. So, We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel this morning, uh, but things have changed a lot since last week. Let me set the latest scene for you. It is now 539 B.C., Seventy years have passed since Daniel and his friends were sent into exile in Babylon. And Daniel is a senior citizen at this point, likely in his 80s. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. That king died more than 20 years ago. And Belshazzar, his corrupt and entitled grandson, is in charge. And we meet up with him as he is throwing this huge wild party. So let's pray before we read all about it. Holy Spirit, would you come and impress on our hearts and our minds today that you love us and that you have a word for us today. It's an unchanging word of your truth, and it's a word that meets us in our circumstances. It's a word of wisdom for the road, for our everyday challenges. So would you encourage us today? Would you challenge us? Would you bring us together in Christ? under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're skipping a little bit in the middle. These are long readings we've been doing from Daniel, so we've had to be a little creative. So Daniel 5, 1 to 7 to start, and then we'll pick it up at verse 17. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Wait a second, you're thinking. Didn't the pastor just say that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, and well caught. If you've got your own Bible, whether on a screen or in book form, You might have seen a footnote there, because in the Semitic languages, including Aramaic, which most of Daniel was written in, the word that translates as father can also mean predecessor or ancestor. And the word that translates as son, which we'll find later in this passage, can also mean successor or descendant. So it's not precise next generation. So let's continue. Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the goblets from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Did you count all those references to drinking wine? There were five of them in those opening four verses. That is more drinking than homecoming at the University of Guelph. (laughs) And way more gold goblets, if 
you ever walked through all the broken beer bottles, not too many gold goblets among them. We continue. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters. It actually says, better translation would be, the king shouted for, he was desperate for, the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But they can't do it. All these wise men cannot interpret it. And so the king gets even more scared. Then the queen, actually we're pretty sure it's the queen mother because all of his wives and concubines were in the party. She comes and tells him about Daniel. So the king calls Daniel in and offers him the same reward. And we pick it up at verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every land, language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes." But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them, which cannot... You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways." It's ominous, isn't it? <laughs> Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe you've heard people say the writing is on the wall. You familiar with that expression? Well, this is where we get it from. And it refers to a fate that's coming. It means that there are signs that are pointing to something bad that's going to happen. I was looking, listening for someone to use it 
in the past couple of weeks, and I was talking to my brother the other day, and he said, we were talking about how much gasoline seems to cost these days, and Kenneth said, uh, the writing's on the wall for big oil. And, and he had just bought a Tesla, so I kind of think he was gloating a little bit. But um, In Daniel 5, the writing on the wall literally makes it clear that the Babylonian Empire is about to fall. And it paves the way for God's people to be restored to their homeland. Also here, we've got another picture for us of how God deals with our pride. So we're going to look at the movement of this text in three parts. First of all, the chaos of the party. Secondly, the crisis of this spooky, freaky hand that appears floating in midair and Daniel's response to it. And third, the clarity that comes with the interpretation. Let's start with the chaos of the party. So you might say, Alex, that may look like chaos to you, but you're a pastor, and lots of people in our culture would love to be at a party like that. But you need to know a little bit about the history of what was going on. The crazy thing about this party is that we know from the historical record, and I don't always do this, but here's an illustration of that historical record. This is the Cyrus Cylinder, a clay form of writing. And from this particular cylinder or tablet, we have a lot of knowledge of what happened uh, with the transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. So from this record, we know that a massive army of Medes and Persians was just outside of Babylon right at this time. Belshazzar knew it. Everyone knew it. So why party? Well, we don't know for sure, but we can speculate. It might have been the king's need to impress people, acting like this didn't faze him at all. Or maybe it was hardcore escapism. Drink away your problems. Or maybe he was so proud that he actually assumed Babylon could never fall. We talked last week about these walls, the incredible walls of Babylon. But death was around the corner, and Belshazzar chose to party. I think this is the human condition. Blaise Pascal says that we run heedlessly into the abyss after putting things in front of us so we don't have to see it. He calls this the principle of diversion. He goes on. He says, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, we have decided in order to be happy not to think about these things. We seek diversions from contemplating our private miseries by caring about nothing more than how to dance well. Look, it's okay to dance, especially here at Courtright. But one reason we gather on Sundays for worship is that it's a wake-up call for us from our diversions. Ernst Becker says in his book, The Denial of Death, that we deal with this abyss that's coming by consoling ourselves in three ways. First of all, we take a ton of pride in our achievements. We find significance in what we've done, in our work, in the wealth we've accumulated, in good deeds, in relationships, in family. Whatever we can find, a legacy that will last. Belshazzar boasts in his victories, and he brings out the gold that he plundered, or inherited, more accurately. Secondly, Becker says that we look to relationships. So closeness to others gives us meaning. Their love keeps us going, and sex is symbolic of that. Just look at all of Belshazzar's wives and concubines. 
That was repeated over and over. And the way it's worded actually makes it pretty clear. This wasn't just a party. It was an orgy. Finally, a third way we console ourselves as we hurtle towards this abyss is we find significance in religion, legalistic religion that lets us think we're better than other people, that allows us to look down on them. And Belshazzar does it too. He isn't too drunk to invoke the gods. Becker concludes that human beings cannot live in full, honest awareness of the meaning of death. We simply can't bear it. We try to find meaning, but life is chaos often. Now, Becker was an atheist, and he did not flinch about the hopelessness of life if death is the only end. Wow, maybe you're thinking right now, thanks for the upbeat encouragement this morning, Pastor Alex. But Christian faith starts with realism about our predicament. It doesn't stop there, but it definitely starts at that point. The Tragically Hip have a great line in one of their songs, no dress rehearsal, this is our life. That's a good start. But what is your life really? Are you in denial of death? Are you wrapped up in all sorts of diversions? Or are you prepared and preparing for death? The only difference between Belshazzar and us is that he was told the day he would die. We don't know the day, but we do know it's inevitable. But thank God he does not leave us in the chaos of impending doom and the denials and diversions of the party. The next thing that happens is there's a crisis. Suddenly this floating hand appears and the king freaks out. He was the life of the party before, and then he's this terrified wreck whose knees are knocking, which actually means that he soiled himself. He comes undone. So Daniel emerges from retirement, comes to the rescue. But first, these wise men again. And once again, they cannot figure out the meaning of it. These guys must have had some use, right? We just really don't see it in the book of Daniel. But when there's a crisis, when it really matters, we know that they cannot deliver. We've seen it over and over. And each time Daniel shows up and he reveals that there is a God in heaven who can do what the supposed experts cannot. Who would qualify as our wise men today? I think we put a lot of trust in science and technology in our world. Now, I want to be clear that science and scientists are gifts from the Lord. We have scientists at Courtright. We love you. And Christians can be snarky or stupid in saying things to the contrary. But also, science does not answer the most important questions in life. Can science tell you how to live, what's right and what's wrong? Can it give you a purpose? Science definitely improves our lives by answering the what question, but not the why question. Only God can answer why. Or how about political wise men? Has any political philosophy or political party ever solved our inclination toward corruption, greed, and the abuse of power? Now, that doesn't mean we withdraw from the public square. But let's face it, we have the most advanced science, technology, politics, and education in history, or we like to think so, and yet we're no better off. Actually, we're lonelier and more isolated than ever. 
Because the problem isn't out there, it's inside of us, it's in our hearts. How are we going to deal with that? Well, we need a word from God. That is why Daniel turns down Belshazzar's offer. In verse 17, Daniel says, King, you can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'm willing to read the writing and tell the king what it means. In other words, Daniel's saying, this is not my word. You can't buy this. You can't control it. The Most High God reveals mysteries freely or he does not. All I can do is tell you the truth as he shows it to me. So Daniel's pointing to God's unchanging word here, which we have today in the Bible. He's saying, ultimately, you cannot figure this out on your own. You need to trust God's word and obey it, and that is really the only way to find true significance. But Daniel's also showing us the importance of drawing a line. Later in the story, at the end, we see that Daniel actually accepts these rewards, so it's not that they're bad in themselves. We've seen Daniel and his friends embrace the culture of Babylon from day one of this sermon series. They were great students of its culture. They were diligent in their careers, even though they were serving an enemy empire. They even allowed themselves to be renamed with Babylonian names. So they're not separatists. They can handle some ambiguity. But they also know how important it is to draw a line. And the guiding principle for them seems to be that they will be different and distinct from the world around them by rejecting self-interest, especially in the form of wealth and power. They are always pointing to God, minimizing themselves and elevating God. So Daniel doesn't take the credit, literally. He didn't take the valuable things he was offered. And that makes an impression. Remember, it did that for Nebuchadnezzar. God's strength shows up when we are weak. Do you want to get paid? How are you thinking about your future career, the job you will have? How are you thinking in the middle of your life about what you have, your possessions? Maybe you're retired or on the verge of retirement. How is the vocation you will have in retirement? How is God calling you into that? Are you looking for recognition and reward when you do the right thing in all kinds of scenarios, large and small? Well, Daniel says, check that impulse. Do it for free. Do it for someone else and let Christ shine through you. I think we've learned about that all over again through the garden here at Courtright. We've been reflecting on that in recent weeks. We grew lots of stuff this summer, and we gave it away, and people noticed. They came out, and they took armloads of zucchini. Or they helped harvest or weed. And some of them asked, why? Why are you doing this? And that's a curiosity that leads to friendship. Could you be a friend who interprets the writing on the wall in someone's life, someone who doesn't have a clue what the crisis they're experiencing means. Who are you walking with right now in the chaos of their life and not judging them, because that's what we're famous for as Christians, keeping our distance and judging? Who are you getting close to? And who are you praying for to have the opportunity 
to share the clarity of God's grace and truth in Jesus Christ with. So we've come through the chaos of the party. We've seen this crisis, the floating hand, and Daniel's Daniel's willingness to interpret. Now we come to the clarity of what he actually says in his interpretation. In our story, the clarity comes as Daniel looks at these words on the wall and he says, many, many means your days are numbered. Tekel means you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Parson, your kingdom will be taken from you and divided. The Bible says that while this is God's individual judgment on Belshazzar, it's also God's verdict on every one of us. As Daniel interprets this message, he explains the nature of Belshazzar's sin. First, he tells the story of how God humbled Belshazzar's grandfather. Then, in verse 22, Daniel says, But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. The vessels from God's house were brought to you. You praise the gods made of silver and gold who do not see or hear or understand. And you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. So Daniel charges the king with two things that are the essence of all sin. First, he says, you have not worshipped God as God. You have not given him the glory. You've lived for yourself, to please yourself. Second, he says, you took the vessels, these goblets, that God set apart for his purposes and used them for your own benefit. You tore them out of the harmony in which they were located in the temple of Jerusalem. It's repeated over and over again. That's blasphemy. And there's another whole sermon in there on how every one of us, not just the churchy people, the people up front, every one of us is called to serve God with our talents and resources. But the basic message here is that these two prodigal leanings are the handwriting on the wall for all of us. And Belshazzar receives God's judgment on his sin. And this is a warning for all of us. But we never leave without the good news of the gospel. And the good news here for us today is that God is clearly pointing to his grace. You see, this wasn't the first time the finger of God had appeared in Scripture. In Exodus 8, when Moses performed miracles so Pharaoh would let his people go, the Egyptian experts, magicians, said, we can't match this. This is the finger of God. And in that case, God's finger pointed to his grace and redemption, that he promises to give us freedom. The next time it shows up is in Exodus 31. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God, it says, which points to God's truth, his truth that does not change and that guides us. In the end, the finger of God is a sign of God's power intervening in a way that only he can intervene. And it's also a direct revelation from God without an intermediary. It's, it's God's communion with us, the worship we were designed, created for. 
And we see this most of all in Jesus. Jesus fulfills every promise, every prophecy of the Old Testament. And in Luke chapter 10, he sends his disciples out and he says, preach grace, heal the sick, feed the hungry, cast out demons. And they come back and they are amazed at what he has done through them. And Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 20, he says that he's only done these things by the finger of God and that God's kingdom has come. It's the only time in the New Testament the finger of God is referenced. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus has broken the power of Satan and the power of death once and for all. He has brought us out of the darkness, out of our fear, into the light, into the hope of who he is. He calls us to make his kingdom visible by serving others. It means that we, the church, are now the writing on the wall for the world. The question is, are we legible? Can people read us as the church? Can they read that writing on the wall? Are we different and distinct enough that we really are a sign of God's coming kingdom? That's a lot to bear. I mean, look at the church and what a mess we've made of it. How is this even remotely possible? Well, if you think in terms of religion, it isn't. If it's about us working harder, being better, trying to do more, we inevitably will fail. But in Christ, it's by grace alone. Because our king is totally different from the rulers of the world. King Jesus emptied himself of his glory on the cross. He gave up his power and his privilege. He gave up himself, unlike the Belshazzars all around us. And he did that solely so that you and I, by receiving him in faith, could know how much God loves us. And hear his invitation to be part of his kingdom. And that is a party that will make the party we read about this morning in Babylon look like nothing. It's the Father running to embrace us in spite of everything. It's his grace. And in the end, it's the only thing that can save us. God is good all the time. Thanks be to him. Uh, we, as the elders on session and the staff of the church are heading off on a retreat. Actually, we're not going anywhere. We're doing a retreat here uh, at the church on Saturday. And I want to invite you to pray for us. We're going to be asking ourselves, how can we be more legible as a church? How's God calling Courtright to be clearer writing on the wall for the city of Guelph and to the ends of the earth? So we really would appreciate your prayers Coming out of the pandemic, everything is up for grabs, right? There's so much uncertainty. We have learned things. We need God's direction. So appreciate your prayers. Thank you.